In 2013, my D1 college baseball career ended. Then the rest of my life began. The true story of how I turned a dorm room hustle into a $2 million business. Let's start right there, man. Yeah, well, it feels like a previous life at this point. I was a pretty good... Barrett O'Neill, entrepreneur, businessman, co-founder of On Demand Storage. I think most successful entrepreneurs are like not over the top intelligent compared to the population. They just have a really, really impressive ability to just like stick with something when most other people would quit. I'm definitely not smarter than somebody watching, but I have trained my muscle, my willpower muscle. You're talking about leverage and you're talking about our parents' generation. Their ideal was to be in like one job, one career for their entire life. For us with the internet, there's this opportunity opportunity to build leverage. Explain how things have changed from our parents' generation to how we're living now, how you can start building leverage right now. So Naval Ravikant did it. Everything in your life, everything you want in reality is a negotiation away. Any job you want, a girlfriend, right? You got like, these are all negotiations of, of trying to make somebody see something your way to get something done. I think there's like different strategies that work really well, but I do think the most important one above all is like. Before we get into the video, YouTube analytics say that 90% of you guys are not subscribed to the channel. If you want to see even bigger guests, better conversations, please subscribe. It really helps us grow the podcast. And with that, onto the video. Barrett O'Neill, entrepreneur, businessman, um, co-founder of On Demand Storage. Um, you know, actually, I wanna start, I remember, I remember even when I first found you, there was a tweet thread that you wrote and I remember just reading the hook and being like, okay, this guy needs to come on. <laughs> so let me, you know, I just gave it a big build up, but let me read yeah, the hook and then, um, and then you can dive into the story. So in 2013, my D1 college baseball career ended. Then the rest of my life began. The true story of how I turned a dorm room hustle into a $2 million business. Let's start right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, so in a previous, well, it feels like a previous life at this point. I was a pretty good baseball player um, and I got a scholarship to go to University of Virginia, which there's still still a great program at the time was very good. I uh, had been to several college world series. Um, and so I went, started playing right away. I was pretty much living this like first dream that I had, which was to be a great athlete at a great educational institution. I always wanted to like use sports to get myself into a nice academic situation. Mm. So all those boxes were checked. It was really exciting. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, threw a pitch and felt a pull in my elbow, which many guys have felt. And that mm. led on to a few different surgeries. And I had like these weird complications. And I just basically ended up at this point where I couldn't throw at the level to play there any mm. longer. Um, it was devastating. Probably something that still drives me and bothers me till this day. But... It prompted me to transfer to Babson College, which is an entrepreneurial-focused college about 10 miles outside of Boston. I'm mm -hmm. from that area, so it was just, I didn't want to be in Virginia, given what had happened, and like not being an athlete after being an athlete there would just be tough to do. Uh, so I went to Babson, and that lit my entrepreneurial fire. And there were some cool things that happened, but basically we started a business storing dorm room items we ended up competing against uh nick huber who's another creator and his partner dan who's th th those guys have become friends mm. and so we were all kind of in the space and we we grew that business and so it was like this weird chain of events that led me to entrepreneurship but that's that's pretty much how it went down yeah no that's a cool yeah. that's a cool story um 
I remember talking about this with Sahil Bloom and we did the episode is like being able to turn losses or situations that just seem like that was just a shit situation. Like if you're playing baseball and you suffer an elbow injury, it's like one of the worst things. Yeah. Like, that can yeah, happen, yeah. So, yeah right? It's like one of three really bad things yeah. that can happen to you. You're like, please don't let one of these three happen. Yeah. And it happened. And you flipped it on its head. Um, and now you're here and you have a business, a successful business. And what do you think allowed you to do that? This episode is brought to you by Free Agency. If you want to take your career to the next level, Free Agency is a company that you should check out. They manage and represent talent in the tech industry and they provide you with a dedicated talent agent to help you find, engage and win top of market roles that will maximize your earning potential. No more leaving money on the table. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with Free Agency. Anyway, back to the show. Well, one, I think I have a great sports system in my family. Um, they are always system? Yeah, my, my family is just like very supportive oh, okay. uh, in general. Um, and so that, that helped, right? They, they were supportive. Uh, but internally, um, I think when bad things happen, and bad things happen to everybody, hmm. to varying degrees, but I think you have a, a choice in that moment to say, this is going to send me down a dark path where I feel sorry for myself, or I'm going to take a step back, remove my emotions from the situation and analyze the factual options in front of me. And so I looked and I said, there is no way that I'm going to be able to compete at this level any longer. Mm. So to continue to try and do that is going to bring me what? More misery, more pain, more uh, just being upset and the opportunity cost of going after something else. So I said, I need to change course now. And I think it was just removing my emotion from it for something that was very emotional just allows you to think more clearly. So it's mm. almost like if you can view it as, you know, if this were happening to somebody else mm. is an interesting way to look at problems because when, you're, when your emotions are too high or you care about something too much, that's when we become irrational. And thinking mm. and acting irrationally typically doesn't end well. So I try to avoid doing that at all costs. And so I try to be logical. I'm, I'm an emotional person and like I run on emotions and I have a lot of passion. Mm. But when you're making big decisions, I think it's important to, to, to step to the side sometimes. Mm. Um, and so that's, that was really something I worked hard on. And I also think for the record, I think people think that when you're, when you're looking back on something that happened maybe 10 years ago, it's easy to look at it and say, oh, like, did you just change directions? And the next day you were like super happy and knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, there was a tons of subsequent decisions and a long time of periods feeling sorry for myself and feeling like the world was unfair. And it may or may not be, but so it's not something that happens in an instant. And I think that when something bad happens to people, they are comparing their situation to something somebody else went through, but maybe 10 years have passed. So it's like they've had a long time for this transition to manifest mm. um, as opposed to just, you know, it's not like one day you're just over something you spent 20 years or 15 years mm. on. So I think it's an important note to add in there. You know, what I find so interesting and like um, it's something that I'm really experiencing right now because I left my job, obviously, like maybe five weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And to pursue like building this into the podcast that I want it to be, 
and like this entrepreneurial path and you just read about so many people's stories and I feel like there's a there's an entrepreneurial journey which is like more like a roller coaster <laughs> that's a good that's just a good to, just to prepare you <laughs> thanks maybe I should yeah. say it. <laughs> um yeah there's a, there's an entrepreneurial roller coaster and it's like you have this vision of what you want this thing that you want to create like what you want to build and on your way to building that vision it's like if you if you know you know in the NBA or like in any sports where they'll they'll do um the last 10 games played and they'll be like loss 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 or like win yeah, win yeah. win i feel like if you did that for like an entrepreneurial journey it's like nine losses and then like or w straight back to losing again and like it's and um through that you're putting in so much effort you're constantly learning like pivoting changing your approach trying something different trying to figure out like what can work and then you find and then it's like there's like a crack of light like you see the thing that kind of works a bit and then you're hammering on that and i find it really interesting what you said around like when you sustain that injury being able to be honest with yourself and being able to remove emotion which is honestly like when you're working on something that you really care about like truly care about that is the most difficult thing in the world to do and so I want you to take take us back to the moment because I'm sure there's like a process to being truly honest with yourself after sustaining that injury what were the immediate emotions when the injury occurred and then what was the path to that point of honesty it's it's a really good question. So initially, when I initially got hurt, it was you know a uh, little sadness and, and anger. And then I had a, my first operation, um, which is a relatively common operation that people who pitch in baseball will have on their elbow. It's not ideal; you don't want it, um, but it's a risk. And and people come back and and play a really high level from it. For me, like I had issues with healing from that and then I had a subsequent one. So when that happened, that's when I felt like it was really unfair because that's when I knew I was not going to ever feel the same again. Mm. So in that moment, initially, very mad. Felt like everything that I had spent a lot of time and sacrificed a lot for during my, uh, say from the time I was 12 to 17, but even before that, but really when you, know, when you really start to say, okay, maybe I can do this and you really focus right? You, have, you can choose to go to parties in high school or you can choose to, to take care of yourself and have the opportunity to, to play at that level. Mm. So I felt like just a lot of the things I had sacrificed for where I ended up getting wasted, um, which is really hard to deal with. Like the, I think one of the hardest things to deal with in entrepreneurship or sports or anything is like the feeling of wasted time. Mm. So I think the first part of turning this around was understanding that I didn't waste time. Like I now had a skill set. I knew what it takes and the amount of work that it takes to get to the highest level of something and to achieve a really big goal that takes a long time to achieve. Maybe it didn't end the way that I wanted it to, but I did learn how to put myself in situations to compete at the highest level, to uh, show up when it matters, right? You only have a few opportunities where these people are seeing you and they're deciding if you're someone who's going to get a scholarship or the one of the other 10,000 guys that wants it. Mm -hmm. And so those skills, once I realized, hey, maybe those apply to other things, that's when I started to say, okay, I really love sports and 
baseball specifically. But really, what do I really love? I love getting really good at something. I love the idea of competing at a high level. I love the idea of achieving a big goal. Mm -hmm. And once you kind of see that's like the light you're talking about, once you see that light shine through in another area, I was like, all engines go on that. <clears throat> and so I think the initial hump of getting over it was really slow, it felt like. Mm -hmm. Once I realized I could apply what I had figured out and learned there into something else, I just wanted to attack that because I was ready to like go hard at something again. Because mm -hmm. um, that like middle ground, maybe like six to 12 months where I didn't really know what I was going to do, that was the worst time because I'm like, I feel like I'm just sitting around now. I don't mm -hmm. have any direction. So really like think about what skills do you learn in any process? What do you have? And what else can you apply that to? And how do you do it? And then, you know, you just got to keep your head down and then eventually you'll see that opportunity. And when you do, you should have a lot of pent up energy to go after it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as thinking as you were speaking, um, I've always felt like there's a link between business and sports. Um, and as you were talking, I was like, the mindset and preparation of an athlete actually mirrors in some ways, and, and you could actually speak to this better than me, mirrors the mindset and preparation of an entrepreneur. Because even if you take the NFL or you take the NBA, so the NBA, there's 30 teams. The NFL, there's 32 teams, I think. Um, only one team wins the Super Bowl. Only one team gets that, like, the NBA ring, right? So even the best players, the best teams in the world, 99% of them are not winning that year. Yeah, failure. Yeah, it's failure. And even if you think about you take it more micro like the individual athlete you look at any nba player they're like practicing in the off season right putting up thousands 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 of shots a lot of the times like in these games it comes down to moments like you're putting in hours like they've done way more than ten thousand hours oh they've, wait yeah way more yeah blown past it for like what like five minutes in one fourth quarter yeah and but it's the same you know, actually, I'll put the question to you. Do you feel like there is a tie between sports and entrepreneurship? And how closely would you say that when you're in business, how close does that feel to when you were on the baseball field and the way you would prepare and like even just being in those big moments and big games? So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think I'll start with the way that they're different hmm. because I think that I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of reasons why athletes become entrepreneurs and why entrepreneurs love to hire athletes, which I think mm -hmm. is all related. Uh, but the reason that they're not the same is a lot of sports is like physically demanding, mm -hmm. showing up when your body doesn't feel good, finding a way to win when you're not at your best. In business, it's like more mental, mm -hmm. um, doing things that scare you, like public speaking, picking up the phone and calling people, walking into somebody's office to get a meeting, uh, or like the monotony of doing the same thing. Because if you're changing your idea, I agree with you what you said earlier, you're going to pivot and things are going to change. But if you don't have the same general direction for a long period of time, you get no compounding, you get no ability to get better. So you need to be able to like really do the same type of stuff every day for long periods of time with minimal feedback put minimal positive feedback. Mm. So I think that's how sports and um, 
business is different. The way they're the same, I think the number one way is dealing with failure. Like big people only like to pay attention to big moments, right? Because they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on LinkedIn. Someone got hired, they got promoted. No one's paying attention to like the 450 days of work where like nothing exciting happened leading up to that. Mm. Um, so I think you need to be able to deal with like just things not going your way every single day and then just putting in time for a, for a long time without exciting things happening like both sports and business 99% of the time are very boring mm. right it's like you know it's even like life it's like you have these moments you think back to like your wedding day but it's like you dated for five years before that yeah. so there's all these little things where it's like the big moments get all the attention yeah. but the gains are made in the small moments that's where I think sports and business are really similar and you develop that mindset from a young age if you're an elite athlete like I'm not expecting anything great to happen today you know, and if you can train your mind to not expect great things to happen every day, but still show up and do the work, that's when you, that's when great things happen. So I think yeah. that for me is something that just, just really stands out that I take away from, from sports. Yeah. I'm curious, like what allows you to even think that way? Cause we all do it, right? Like if you've pursued an entrepreneurial journey, you're getting like 90, 95%, maybe 99% negative feedback especially initially, like when you're starting. Yeah, definitely initially. And you keep showing up. There's, there's, that, there's that quote, right? Like um, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over. Yeah. Um, like are entrepreneurs like insane? <laughs> to, to a certain extent, I think, I think the, the only, or one of the, one of the big differences is like, you need to look for, for opportunities to, to iterate too. So it's like in any given day, the vast majority of what you're doing might be the same, but there's like these micro iterations that mm. don't really feel big in the moment, but then you look back five or six years and it, they're, they seem like huge pivots, but it doesn't always work that way. Like even within on-demand storage, when we first started our company, we were serving mostly like re people who wanted residential store storage for like their goods in their home. Mm. We don't do any of that now. It's all commercial. And there isn't a day where we just said, we're not servicing this type of customer anymore. It just, what we started to realize is like, where are our profits coming from? Where are the least headaches coming from? And who do we like dealing with? So then you look over a couple of years and it's like, oh, our entire roster is commercial. All our uh, marketing is commercial. All our verbiage on our website is commercial. And I think that's how it happens more. So it mm. feels like you're doing the same thing every day, but like, these little 1% differences every day for three years actually produce something totally different than if you had stayed on the same path. Mm. So I think that's maybe how you get around the insane piece. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, cause you got to make sure it's working. If, if you're doing the same thing every day and it's not working, I agree. You're insane. <laughs> you are actually you're insane. insane. Uh, and you got to switch that up. Oh, that's good. Okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. You know what you, uh, you mentioned the transition of going from like residential to commercial. I want to take it even earlier than that because I'm sure there are a lot of people that like, maybe it's not storage. Uh, like maybe that's not the, the niche of their business. Um, but they're early. Maybe they're in college or just early period um, with their business. And you even mentioned in the, in the tweet that I wrote, um, it started with a dorm room hustle. And can you kind of take us to those moments? Like when you say it started with a dorm room hustle, like what does that even mean? 
Yeah. So we, so my partner and I at the time was no longer involved in our storage business, um, but remains a good friend. We both got internships. I got one at UBS, uh, the bank. He got one at a real estate investment company. And this is in 2013, probably. Yeah. And he, you know, we were making like 12 or 14 bucks an hour. So you start to do the math. I'm going to work 40 hours a week. It's going to be by, you know, 14 weeks over the summer. And then I got to pay X amount of taxes. And we just realized like, hey, we're not really making that much. Like we're going to have no money saved for when we get back to school. So we had this idea to store this stuff for the international students at Babson College. There's a lot of them, a lot of out-of-state students too. So we had a complimentary skill set. I said, hey, I'll make a website. I'll set up the payment process, all this stuff. You put flyers on every single car in the lot and under every single door on campus like two or three times. So we said, okay, so we did it. Nothing really happened. Um, we did it again and like signups just started rolling in. We had, I think we had 67 signups. So it ended up being like $22,000 in revenue that oh, we made. Yeah. So we split it up. It was our profits were like 97%. So it was, we, we stored all the stuff in my parents' basement the first year. It was, <laughs> it was crazy. And they, my mom was like, didn't sleep the whole summer, but I love was, the business model. It was worth, yeah, it was worth it. Though. Uh, sorry. And so we, um, we split that up. And I'm like, wow, we made twice as much in five to six days of work when you factor in the pickup and then the delivery on the back end. And I'm like, we really? And that's when I realized like the first time feeling that time and, and money were associated. So like mm. we just started this in a dorm room, riffing on ideas. We said, let's do it. Let's try it. I was expecting maybe 10 people, maybe we'd make a thousand dollars each or something like that. And that would have been, that would have been amazing. Mm. And it just became way bigger than that. So it just taught me like if you take action, A, you never know what's going to happen. B, you might stumble upon something really good and see if it doesn't work out, then you know you learn something and you learn what not to do next and you've created a process for getting something started faster the next time. So I think like these low, I call them like low stakes ideas that you can kind of put together quickly and for very little cost. It's like there's really no risk and it's all upside because like either you find something that's a great way to make money and add value or you learn what doesn't work and you just, you know, it's something you jot down in your notebook. So the next time you come up with an idea, you run it through this filter of things that you know don't work. Yeah. And so that's just how you start getting better. And I think the dorm room is a great place to do that. You know, you just got to have the right type of friends that want to try things and aren't afraid to fail and look stupid in front of the other classmates and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, that that's was the humble beginnings of storage for me. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Um, you know what, just what you just said was so, is so key. And I think if more people did that, they would literally get the outcomes that they want. And what I mean is, is when you say, um, just doing like low cost, just bets, yeah, just throwing out bets. And, um, I was thinking, even as you were speaking, I was like, why don't more people do that? And I think my personal opinion and i want to get your take as well is i think it's probably a few things i think the biggest thing is probably like fear of judgment and i think people put too much not in terms of effort they put too much of their personal value and emotion into each bet there's something and maybe you actually kind of learn it through sports because you put so many reps in that you actually can't be personally tied and so personally invested in each rep 
Like Steph Curry, for instance, right? Like the greatest shooter of all time. If he shot a three-pointer and after every one he missed, the guy was like an emotional wreck. <laughs> he wouldn't be, he'd be shooting like one three a game. Probably. Yeah, exactly. And I think that analogy is almost like um, what people do. And it's what I did in, in university. I tried to start like a, a clothing line. And in my mind, I had these visions of like Nike and Jordan and Adidas. And like, I never even launched it. And it was because by the time it was time to launch, the vision of what it should be was so huge in my head. I had told so many people about it. I was so personally invested in something which should have just been a quick bet. Yeah, you should have mocked up t-shirts and never even got them made and tried to sell them. And yeah. then when people bought them, you should, you know, you get them, print them on demand and, and sell them. Yeah, <laughs> that is literally yeah. the, the blueprint. So if, you, hey, if you're in college and you want to start a, a clothing brand, <laughs> that's how you do it. Yeah, we just gave you the blueprint <laughs> right there. <laughs> nice. Um, you think, I, I think the fear of judgment is a big one. Yeah. Like if we were going to go deeper into like why you want it to be so great, so perfect, uh, I think the fear of judgment is a big one. Do you have I, any, anything else that you think? Or like yeah, so one, and I used to suffer from this big time, is I, I care what other people think. Yeah. Um, I think it's common, it's core to being a human, but a common thread amongst the most successful people, and I think success in, in a lot of different ways, whether it's their relationships or their uh, business, they don't care what other people's opinions who are not directly involved mm. are. Meaning that's a dumb idea. It's like, well, let's let the market decide. Let's try it. I think it's a good idea. And this happened to a certain extent when we did our storage, uh, the storage at Babson is they preach entrepreneurship at the schools. So everyone thought it was a little corny. Um, mm. Oh, you guys are doing entrepreneurship stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, so cool like that. But yeah. then- when we were rolling around campus picking stuff up and people knew what our prices were and they're just starting to do quick math in their head, all of a sudden it becomes cool. So yeah. the, the fear thing is purely a function of nothing is cool until it works. And then once it works, anything is cool. Like, you know, is it cool to own the largest uh, pest removal company in Boston? Probably, right? Yeah. I'm sure it's really cool for the owner, yeah. whoever that is. And so I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is more media driven, which is raise capital, uh, user growth. Like it's all these metrics that in the long run are irrelevant to the success of your business. Cause user growth is one thing. Acquiring profitable customers is a different thing. Mm. And a lot of people have made a lot of money on businesses that never made money, right? By, by starting them. But for the vast majority of us, I think just starting a low cost, low risk business with in a proven market mm. where if you are a little bit better than other people, it's almost guaranteed that you'll succeed. That's where entrepreneurship should really be focused, not on apps and, and websites and ideas that are going to change the world. And I think th those narratives are exciting to read about and I like to read about them too, but they disincentivize young people from taking action because to your point, it feels so huge. It's like climbing Mount Everest. Mm. Imagine being in college, scraping money together for beer and coffee, and then you, you're reading about, oh, if you don't raise $10 million, you can't start a company. Mm. It's just like, it, it's an insurmountable uh, 
it's it's an it's an insurmountable roadblock that prevents people from taking action when it's not true. Like the, a lot of the successful entrepreneurs and people were just people who took action and said, Hey, I don't have a lot of money. So I better figure out something to do without that. Mm. And that's something I wish the narrative would change on a little bit around entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, you know what it is as well. I think, um, I think you're so right about, um, the narrative of entrepreneurship. And I think people think, and I used to think this, that everything happens in like moments in like quick moments. So it's like, I don't know, I was walking down the street, I saw someone had this problem and I was like, I'm gonna start a massive business. And then I raised a bunch of venture capital and it went. And what I found is, is usually, at least in my experience, even with this podcast, when I initially did the podcast, the only goal was to do 10 episodes. Yeah, that's that, a great goal. Yeah, that was the only goal. And this was like, I've tried other businesses in the past. And the ones where there was this massive vision, the next the Nike, the next this, whatever, um, those always failed. Yeah. And usually it's they- scary because yeah. you're, you're, you're telling people you're going to create the next Nike is great. Like somebody's going to do it and there's no reason it can't be you. Like that's the other side of this coin is you should think big, mm. but I think you need to think small before you think big because- mm no businesses get really, really big and stay around for 50 or hundred plus years if they don't make money. Mm. Right. So it's like build that into your culture from day one, not raising cap. Like there may be a time where you need to raise capital to grow and that's fine. And a lot of great businesses, pretty much every huge business does that through one channel or another, but it just, it's, it's ruined entrepreneurship for a lot of people. And I even talked to some of my friends who are not in, you know, there may be more in corporate or something and they view, and these are guys who, who have learned about entrepreneurship and are well-educated and very successful. And their idea of entrepreneurship is, oh yeah, I mean, you got to go raise money and start a tech company. And it's like, mm. I mean, that's one tiny sliver and really not even close to the majority. So, you know, that that's, I think just think small and take action and then action snowballs and compounds and you see opportunities. But yeah, you're not, I don't think you're going to have some epiphany walking down the street mm. and change the world. It's probably happened, but like, yeah, I would just play the odds a little bit better than that. Yeah. Right. It's just like, do what you know is going to work. Yeah. You know, and it's like, um, I think a lot of the times you need like a signal, like a real signal, not your personal belief. I think sometimes, um, and it's funny, like even working at a startup, I saw this, which is like, sometimes you have an idea and you do one of these low, low cost bets and people respond so well. And a lot of the time you would think like, um, I need to have it perfectly built out or it needs to be, if I'm starting a company, I need the perfect landing page, the perfect website, the perfect marketing strategy. When the world gives you a signal, it doesn't even need to be, what you have doesn't even need to be perfect. You no, can literally close. Put, yeah, put up something that you spent like, I don't know, an hour making the landing page. Yeah. And if it's a good idea, people will respond to it right well, there. I think, so on my wall in my office, I have written execute with speed. Mm. And that's because when you do things with speed, you get feedback faster and you iterate faster mm. and you don't waste time. Like most people like the idea of just, just talking about ideas like hey what if we did this what if we did that and it's like let's try it let's just let's put something together quickly to your point let's get the messaging 
across. And that's where I think, uh, I know we're going to get into this, but that's where I think building distribution for yourself is the most important thing you can do moving forward in the future, meaning like an audience or some way to reach people at scale quickly and inexpensively, because then that feedback loop is like a thousand X, maybe even a hundred thousand X, depending on the size of your audience. And that just allows you to grow, grow faster. So I think it's really about getting feedback on low cost, low risk ideas or bats, whatever you want to call them. And then just taking the information, repackaging it and doing it again, that will grow into something really big. But even your, there is no end state, right? Like mm -hmm. there's no, there's no final, um, state in which your company is going to live because if you don't evolve, like you, you're going to go out of business. Hmm. That could be an agency business. It could be a storage business. It could be Nike. If they were still selling the same shoes they were selling in 1980, they would probably be out of business if that was all they sold hmm. because people would get tired of it. And so they're in the business of evolving. So they're constantly putting out new stuff, getting feedback, and they have built huge distribution for themselves where they can get it in front of millions or billions of people instantaneously. And if hmm. something doesn't hit, I'm sure they've shut down tons and tons of lines that we don't even remember or could ever know about, mm. right? That they've put out and got feedback. That's the mentality to take. And whatever scale you can do that on, for most of us, the scale is a lot smaller. You could literally ask 10 friends to be unbiased, say, hey, what do you think about this? Mm. And if five of them say, hey, that's a great idea, don't even tell them it's your idea, right? Mm. Remove yourself again from the equation, but it's about doing that quickly. And that's mm. just the, the point to hammer home on dorm room ideas, on getting started, on taking action is like, if it requires weeks to get going, do something else. Yeah. You know, you know, the thing with the, the, the fear of judgment thing as well. Um, and it's definitely something that I've struggled with, um, is like, I think something that's helpful is the realization that no one really actually cares. Like no At one, all. yeah, <laughs> like they literally don't care. Like they, they're not, um, like when you're scared to put the tweet out, you're scared to post like the story, like p someone might see it and genuinely will think, may, might think it's corny or something, but they don't really care. Like they don't. Um, no. And I find a, a lot of judgmental feelings actually come from a place of envy. Um, mm. Like people, when people feel the need to be judgmental, in my opinion, it, it comes from envy or jealousy because if you truly think somebody's doing something that's stupid, hmm. for me, like I see it and I go, oh, okay, that's stupid. And then I never think about it again to your point because it's like, why would I occupy my mind? So I think when people are taking time to, to talk about you behind your back, like it's typically coming from a place of this is different or they're putting themselves out there. Let's make fun of them. But hmm. it's just because they're too scared to do it. Because mm. if they really thought it was dumb or not impactful, they wouldn't be impacted by it. Mm. And so that's kind of the, the irony of it anyway, is like, it's like they say, like all press is good press for the most part. Yeah. And so it's like, if people are talking about you, what you're doing is making an impact. That's what you're trying to do when you're putting yourself out there. And yeah, people, people are going to talk shit on anything you do. And it just, it's, you need a who cares mentality. Yeah. I'd find like four or five people that you really care what they think about who can be like your, your true North of if they are supporting you and think you're doing a good job, then you know, Hey, I trust these people and their moral compass and their judgment that I'm doing the right thing. And I should listen to them, not people in my replies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I've gotten some nasty ones before, but I can only imagine what people with much bigger accounts get, but yeah, it is what it is. Like it's, it's, I'm sure if, if, if 
behind closed doors, they could, you know, trade their audience with mine. They would do it in a second. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of what I tell myself and then I just move on. Yeah. It's, it's funny, actually. I think that is, um, it's funny when you said that that's like a trait that the most successful people have. Um, they don't tend to listen to people that are not directly involved. And um, I remember listening to an interview with Drake, probably like the most popular artist, I guess, over the last decade. Yeah, one of the biggest stars, I think, in our, it's inarguable. Yeah. It's huge. And then also like just in terms of like media, speculation, tabloids, like yeah. commenting, like people commenting on everything he does. And they asked him about his process for creating albums. And like when he's done, when does he decide that like it's finished, uh, like an album is done? And he said he'll, in his mind, he'll finish recording and then he'll take that list of songs and he has about 10 to 15 people whose opinion he highly values from like people in his team to like other artists, uh, people that he just knows. And if he plays it for them and they're fucking with it, yeah. then it's like, okay, let's go. Yeah, well, I think that lends, lends some credit to the, what I just said a few minutes ago, which is find people that matter and know what they're talking about as it pertains to what you're doing. But yeah, if Drake put out a, a sample song and said, what do you think? 50% of people are going to say it kicks ass and yeah. 50% of people are going to say you suck and you lost your touch. <laughs> so, it, it, right? And so it's just the way Facts. it is. And, and not only that, I think people who comment and reply on the internet disproportionately skew compared to like if you put out a random sample of of the real world i think it'd be a lot more balanced on a lot of things yeah. than the 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 reply guys who are mad uh at the world in general so i think you need to take you know th that's another reason why you need to just have a group of people that you trust who maybe like represent how your audience or the world to react to something because the people who reply make up you know, 1%. Yeah. And, but they're doing 90% of the replies. Yeah. So like, they, right. They almost need to <laughs> just loud. be discounted yeah. immediately. It's like people who do Yelp reviews. Mm. It's like, you can't trust Yelp because people who take the time to leave Yelp reviews skew towards negativity. Yeah. And so, right. Like I don't have a great pizza and go, I'm going to leave a Yelp review. I do it if I'm, I've never done it, but I would do it if I was pissed off because the pizza went to the wrong address or something. <laughs> right. So yeah. that is a huge, that's why it's really important to, to not listen to everybody because most of the people who are willing to give their opinion, you don't want. Yeah. I love it. Who do you listen to and why? Yeah. So definitely listen to my wife for sure. <laughs> That's uh, a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's really smart and she has seen me. She was with me when I started my businesses and stuff. So she knows what I'm trying to do and if it's yeah. in line. So she, she's always, uh, a really great person to listen to, uh, my business partners, right. I try to partner with people that I think are smart and have different skill sets than I do, which I think is really important in a partnership. And so you, you, they are, can look at my idea or something I want to do from a different angle, mm. but also what I think is a they're going to have a smart angle, but it might be different. So that covers like a different type of person or customer or something like that. Um, definitely listen to my parents and then you know, I, I do think doing like anonymous polls out on Twitter and stuff is good. If you get enough um, response, then you can start to, you know, suppress down those angry people. So maybe you don't look at the replies, but if you put out a poll or something, 
I think that's like one of the most underutilized tools on feature uh, tools on Twitter is like, if you have an idea, put it out there. And if you get two or three or 4,000 replies, like that's a pretty good sample mm. size on like what, what people are thinking about, uh, any given idea, feature, opportunity, investment, whatever it is. Yeah. That's a good one. Like just the, I guess just the volume of replies versus yeah. looking at like individual. Well, the, the conversion on those or like the participation and engagement is huge. Like you might have 10% of, uh, engagement from views to, to votes where on a regular tweet, like you're probably going to have, it would be tough to get 10% engagement on likes to views. Like that would be a very viral tweet, but an average poll will do that. So people just are more likely to participate in that for whatever reason, if it's less effort or just it's anonymous. Um, but it's a great way to get feedback at scale. Mm. You know, one of, the, one of the threads that you wrote, and I thought it was really interesting, was um, you're talking about leverage and you're talking about how for like our parents' generation, um, their ideal was to be in like one job, one career for their entire life. And then for us with the internet, um, there's this opportunity to build leverage. Um, and even earlier when we were speaking, you said um, you made a comment and it was like um, disassociating time from money, which I think is really closely linked to leverage mm -hmm. i kind of want to just give you the floor on it like can you um just explain that concept of leverage explain how things have changed from our parents generation to how we're living now and like how people should be thinking about leverage how you can start building leverage right now so uh <clears throat> naval ravikant did a maybe like a five minute podcast recording kind of just self-recording on this <clears throat> maybe in 2017 or, or something like that but he talks about this idea of leverage and he says there's four types of leverage there's labor capital code which is technology mm. and then media which is audience or your own could be a newsletter kind of your own way to reach people distribution and so back in the day when so i'm 31 so my parents generation they're baby boomers um they really only had access to labor and capital but even those things were really hard to come by labor is local mm -hmm. capital like you couldn't go online and get credit cards you know like when yeah. you're starting a business or something not endorsing that as a strategy but just <laughs> we've all done we've all been there um but so Right. They had those two forms of leverage, but really like it was reserved for, for people who, who maybe even had their own capital. Like how would you get labor without capital? Hmm. And so it's just, it was really tough to like dive into entrepreneurship and grow it and earn money disassociated with your time. Most opportunity, so a very much smaller percentage of people could use that leverage and, you know, make money off of other people's labor or make money off of money. Mm. Um, or putting that money to work in their business or other investments. So you had to go get a job. Mm. But the introduction of code or technology allows you to earn money from anywhere in the world, uh, 24 hours a day in a complete 
meritocracy. Like the internet is like the ultimate meritocracy. There's no participation trophies handed out on the internet. Mm. So if you have talent, you can do that. And then media, uh, marketing is so expensive. Like I don't, I don't think people who, a lot of people who aren't in business and haven't done, like how expensive it is. Like Google will charge you $25 per click on a ad for commercial storage. And one out of 300 of them are like even decently. It's really, really hard to make money through traditional advertising channels, TV, mm. all this stuff is insanely expensive. But by putting yourself out there in the internet, you can attract people who are interested in what you're saying. Mm. And not only that, you can reach them for free or near free. Mm. Like you could have a newsletter with 100,000 subscribers all interested in a specific topic and it might cost you like $300 a month to run that. Mm. So it, that opportunity is insane. And then you go back up to what our parents had and how has that changed labor? Well, now we have global markets. We have currency exchanges. I've worked with people overseas in India and other countries for the better part of five or six years. And I've paid them above what they would make locally, but it's allowed my margins in business to change my life too. Like that opportunity arbitrage where they can improve their life in their location. Mm. We've never met in person. I can improve my life and my location and we can work cohesively as a team. It's hard to even wrap your mind around that that's possible now mm. and only going to increase. And then capital, uh, ca capital's much easier to access now than it was before. Like investing is more common. Uh, even finding accredited investors, uh, there's more banks, there's more uh, kind of like startups that fund this stuff and fund it quickly. So it's just, you know, it, it, and not only that, a lot of the things are are cheaper, like products and stuff are cheaper to access. So, you know, even things like computers, it's like easy to get a computer relative to how it was in 1980 mm. or 1995 even. So you can go to Best Buy with $500 and buy something that you could, in theory, build a $100 million business off of from a place with no office space. Mm. So all those things combined, it just creates this opportunity that we're just living in this time where you have to appreciate it. You can literally accomplish insane levels of business success with a very lean team without a lot of risk mm. from anywhere. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so I feel like we're obligated to take advantage of that opportunity because those previous generations who kind of paved the way for this, they didn't really, they didn't have those opportunities. It was, it was hard to create leverage. It's much easier now. Yeah. The age of leverage. Um, you know what's funny about Naval as well? I feel like there's like a whole era of entrepreneurs that are literally, like the amount of people I've spoken to that come on this podcast, yeah. that like everything they're doing is like inspired by Naval. He's like a modern day philosopher. Yeah. It's like our, our version of Aristotle or yeah. Socrates or yeah, something. They have to look back at him like that in yeah. like a thousand years. I remember um, I spoke to Jack Butcher and he was, and I um, was talking about Naval. And he said, he was like, um, it's like, I studied Naval's writing like it was a training manual. Didn't, he was big on the, uh, I've, I've seen Jack Butcher comment on this, but he said like the build, build once, sell twice. Yeah. He got that from Naval. And yeah. Like that, he's done a ton of successful courses and, and product launches and stuff. Like, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. But he's like, I studied it. Like yeah. I literally like, I used this as like the manual. Like, yeah, he's uh, worth studying. He's yeah. worth listening to. And, 
everything he says is like you're like oh i never thought of it that way yeah <laughs> the thing the, so. the amazing thing with naval as well is like um i have this thing i realized i remember when i was younger i used to think that the best speakers are the ones who like use the fancy words and like um very like sophisticated speech yeah. he will say like one line and the amount of like value and knowledge that is condensed it's crazy in that one like um for people that are watching if you read his tweet thread um what is it how to get rich without getting lucky yeah I it's think. uh it, it's i think it's one of the most popular tweets yeah of all time yeah it's basically how to build wealth without getting lucky and he just drops this like 30 tweet playbook yeah but it's in complete layman's terms like you have need no business knowledge or anything to understand it and it's it's a master yes yeah. it's, 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 it's a master. There's a reason why it's the, the most popular twitter thread of all time it's a master class and literally if you if you didn't list if you didn't um i know it's a habit that some people i've even got into it where like people will read like business books and like these self-help books and just keep reading 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 you don't need to read any of that shit just read yeah. that thread yeah those 30 tweets or whatever it literally gives you the whole it gives you the whole game right there. Yeah, it's 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 gold. Yeah, it's gold. You, you know, one thing, um, I love the conversations we're able to have on this podcast, but I think um, one thing for the audience I always think about is what you were mentioning about like just the amount of opportunity that there is. And um, I've spoken to so many people in my life, like even when I went back to London a couple of weeks ago, being here in New York, like people that are actually in the grand scheme of things, are some of the most like if you took the whole planet some of the most successful humans if you're living in new york or you're living in london or whatever mm -hmm. um and they're working jobs that they are like really dissatisfied in um they feel like their potential isn't being maximized they hate what they're doing but they feel that they have to do it and um it's weird for me because I'm like the podcast guy that's like, you could just leave and do your own thing. But it's literally true. Like with the internet, you can, you can craft a career that is specifically built for you. It's not investment banking or management consulting where they take like thousands and thousands of people um, every hiring cycle and put them in like this very dedicated um, structure, which is actually, it's a good way to learn. Actually, I started out in, in consulting. But you can literally build something that is made for you and your skill set and what you enjoy. And I say that because I want to make sure this episode is like really actionable for people. Mm -hmm. So it's like you, you, you hear the inspiration, like you hear the Naval, but then you also get the action behind it. Like, what can you do right now? And so as someone who's built a successful business, as someone who you're approaching like 100,000 followers on Twitter, right? Yep. Um, if I was going to say, for someone looking to start out building leverage, they obviously have access to the internet. The next 90 days, uh, you can choose any like, media platform you want. But like, what would be, if I had to say to them, just focus on these three things. Just do these three things for 90 days. What would you say those three things are? Uh, figure out something you're good at or something you can become good at figure out who needs that and then figure out where they hang out. Meaning, you know, uh, are they on Twitter? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they on Instagram? Are they on TikTok? Get good. Uh, um, 
and figure out what you're good at. Find out who needs it. Mm. Go where they hang out and just start putting content out for them. And what you'll do is you'll attract people in and, and, and reach out to them. You know, like, like we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, you reach out to me and I responded to it. And then like, now we've become friends. We've had a relationship. Um, and now I'm was coming to New York this week and I'm back on the podcast in person. And it was all because like you went through that process. That's the actionable process is just, but the first step is like figuring out how you can help people and then who needs to be helped. Mm. And then typically people with the same problems will congregate in the same places. Right. And that's the, that's why it works because if you, if you're providing, uh, uh, how to do, uh, if you get really good at pay-per-clicks, delivering pay-per-click service for people, right. Helping them deploy their capital into ads to get more companies to get more more customers then you know that there's a lot of uh, small business owners on twitter you go on twitter you start giving away free information about this skill set you have then you reach out to them ask if they need it or they reach out to you that's how you generate business or if it's you have knowledge you start writing about the knowledge on the internet uh and then people will find it and so that's really what it is it's just like literally getting started with something you're interested and good at Mm. that people need Mm. And then pick the right medium because, like, I, I do think, I do think there's a little bit of an, just like using your brain that goes into it. Where if you're looking for uh, X type of person and they're never on LinkedIn, it's like, well, maybe don't, maybe don't start on LinkedIn. Mm. You know what it is, and I, I, whenever you say anything, I'm like, why, why aren't people doing it already? Um, like, what's stopping it? And, um. I think, you know what I saw from university? I think people like, and, and we're all like this, but people prefer paths where there's a certainty at the end. For sure. And the biggest companies are actually really smart with how they even um, build like their internship or like their programs. Because if you were to try and get a job at like um, a bank or a consultancy out of university, what they'll tell you is, is like, okay, come for the, like a summer internship you do like the like the three months or whatever over the summer, you'll get like 10 grand at the end of it. It's like certainty, like you're getting the 10 grand in the back. Like it's not a, you're getting it. And if you do well, we'll give you, you'll have a job offer. And so it's like, we're trying to get the most talented um, students coming into our company. We're just gonna overload them with certainty. Like here's the 10K, here's the job. Uh, you can live in this city. Like we're giving you certainty at each step. And the thing with what you said, it's actually the path. It's like, it's the path forward to get what you want. And it's when you start getting those, like uh, those exponential returns, those, like those numbers that you didn't dream of. Like sometimes you hear certain, you hear numbers of what people are making. You're like, yeah. Like what? Yeah. That guy's, you're like, what? He's earning that much an hour. Like that is insane. Um, but to be able to get that, you need to be able to stomach a certain level that of uncertainty. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think the, I think this is why, uh, companies like Glassdoor have done so well, right? It's Mm. like, there's, they minimize the unknown. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is really about the unknown. Uh, there's uncapped upside. You should put yourself in a situation where the downside is capped. Some people don't, 
Mm. Um, and that, that can turn out really bad, but yeah, I mean, I, I think whether it's consulting or, or banking, I think you can have great lives doing those things. I think you can earn tremendous amounts of money, uh, probably eventually work your way to doing some fulfilling work where you're more hands-on on some of these projects and deals. Um, but even in those companies, there is not as much certainty as they will have you think, because if you think about how companies work, each person that's higher up the food chain has to make more money than they're paid by a wide margin. Mm. Like that, I, I think that's the, the, the piece of it. So if, if you have a hundred entry-level bankers come in, th- only a very small percentage of them can be managing directors, like mm. literally just mathematically, maybe five or 10 of them or something like that. So it's not certain, like the, the, the downside in those is more certain. But the upside, I really don't think is because you have to outperform, as you said before, top 1% students. It's very competitive. Where if you create your own vertical and you do it for a long time, I think the upside can become more certain in entrepreneurship. But I think it's really capping the downside. Like people are scared of having nothing. And Mm. I think that fear is kind of overblown. I think. I think a, I think anyone who is capable of being a vice president at a bank, I don't know what is a VP at an investment bank bank, five hundred k, something like that. Yeah, I think the vast majority of those people could earn five hundred k in less hours on their own. Mm. Could they all earn five million? Probably not. Like just like all entrepreneurs can't earn five million, but to earn the five million, the managing director gets like only X percent of them are going to be able to do that just mm. mathematically. So I don't, I think the certainty is is a little bit of a mirage. Mm. I think there is, there's more short-term certainty for sure though. Yeah. I actually love that point. And I, I actually, it reminds me of a, a tweet that you wrote. Uh, and I think it's such a good timing for it because of like where the economies are. And even in tech, like people are being laid off their jobs. Um, and I'm not talking about like at the startups where you kind of, when you join a startup, you yeah. kind of know like, yeah, okay, the downside shit. is zero. Yeah. But you also know in your mind, you're like, this shit could go yeah. not work. And then yeah. I'm, I'm unemployed. That's like the riskiest type of em- employment you can have because you're like, okay, yeah, I have equity. If we go to the moon, like, you know, yeah, that's very, I throw that very much in like the entrepreneurial path mm. being early at a startup. But you're thing, taking the same risk, essentially. You, you, you know what I love that you said, though? It's like, um, and it's kind of messing. I feel, I feel like it's almost messing with people is you didn't used to think there was a risk at working at Google, though, or like at yeah. working at Microsoft. Right. or Not working, in the last 10 years. Yeah, anyway. you didn't think that yeah. was a risk. And then it's like, um, even they're laying people off. And I remember you, you, you wrote a tweet and you said, I don't remember exactly how you worded it. You're basically like, everyone thinks that being like an entrepreneur is risky. It's actually probably riskier. Like, Well, it's definitely riskier in a time like this because if so, say you're working at um, Google or something and you're making a really good living, like $300,000, which a lot of those developers make or even more, a lot of Mm -hmm. them. So Google's going to pay more than the vast majority of other places for their engineers because they have the best engineers. That's why they're Google. And so if you get laid off from that like they laid off 10,000 people or whatever earning that lifestyle back is going to be hard 
mm. for all of those people. Some will maybe end up doing better, right? Like it may, some may go start a company and do really well. They're really smart people. I think most of them will be fine. Yeah. But there is a certain, there are a lot of these these downside situations are just not talked about. It's like the, it's like the, you know, the, there's a success bias. It's like, we only pay attention to the stories that, that worked out. It's like mm. easy to talk about, uh, the FedEx guy going to Vegas and like gambling to keep his company alive. It's like, that's probably <laughs> happened like 10,000 times and like you lose and that's it. Right. And so I think yeah. those stories do happen. And so it's important to acknowledge that, um, just when you're looking at entrepreneurship versus employment is like, yeah, there's going to be stories where like somebody just stayed at their company and they ended up becoming CEO. And it's like, that's great. There's going to be stories of entrepreneurs who went and did great things. It's like, that can't be the the model. But if I think if you are the type of person who is smart enough and has the skill set to get to a certain level in those big companies, but you maybe have to work X amount or take X amount of time to get there. I think they could get to those levels much faster on their own once they got accustomed to, you know, getting away from requiring a paycheck, which not everybody has the opportunity to do. So I think some of it's opportunity based, but it it's a really hard debate because yeah, when things are good and the economy's good, like it's great for entrepreneurs and employees. When things are bad, like bad all around but if you've built a business that can withstand that then like that's the ideal scenario mm. because you're you, you're not going to put yourself on the chopping block mm. you know what? i kind of want to i want to i'm interested to see what you think of the counter argument which is like um someone was listening to this conversation maybe they're they're working at a company and uh they listen to your story and they hear like Obviously, you were like a talented like college uh, baseball player. Um, it didn't work out. You end up starting this like business in university. Um, the first time you were doing it, you, made, you said twenty two thousand. Yeah, right? that was the the yeah in like four days. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and then grow that into like a multi million dollar business. What if someone just like listened to that and they're like. This guy's just an outlier though. Like in every respect. Like it's like the sports, like the 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 athletic achievement, the business achievement. Like not everyone can be not like I can't do that. Like I don't have that. Well, I don't think everybody's wants to be an entrepreneur or is cut out to be. Um, I think a lot more people could be cut out to be if if they took the approach that we've outlined here in this podcast of like just like low stakes. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be a big piece of it. Um, I, you know, I think maybe somebody who thinks that is, is giving me more credit than I deserve. Like, I think if I have to look back, my success in sports and in business has come down to like, I think I can withstand, um, I can stay doing the same thing without positive feedback. I think for as long as anybody. And I think that's like my greatest skill is like, mm -hmm. I have a good intuition of if I'm on the right direction, but if you can be, if you can just stick with something for a long time, I think most people overestimate how smart, successful and entrepreneurial people are. I think they're just more like, oh, I'm committing to this and I'm just going to do it. And I know there's going to be some changes along the way. And I know my idea is not perfect right now. I think it's way more about that than it is about being a genius. Granted, like some the guys who get the most press, guys and girls who get the most press, like they're going to be 
maybe genius level people. But again, yeah. I think it's like the whole just like focus on entrepreneurship is on like this tiny little fraction of it. I think most successful entrepreneurs are like not over the top intelligent compared to the population. They just have a really, really impressive ability to just like stick with something when most other people would quit. Mm. So that that would be my pushback on on that is mm. I'm I'm definitely not smarter than than somebody watching. Um but I have trained my muscle to my my willpower muscle. So I think yeah. it's more about that. Huge respect, man. Huge respect. Um you know actually I want to talk about some of like the you mentioned like the geniuses. I think there are like a few people, there's a few outliers out there who are just like, they're just amazing. Um and when I was researching you, like one of the ones that I think kept coming up was Apple and Steve Jobs. And um, it was really cool, actually, like some of the tweet threads that you had, like I never heard these stories about Steve Jobs, even the one with um, the way he kind of navigated the whole ebook thing with yeah, Amazon. It's a great story. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, why didn't, why didn't you tell that story? Yeah, I mean, like the long and short of it was is is Amazon was trying to corner the ebook market, which was getting really big around 2010. Um, at the time, they thought the market would be huge. It actually missed the a lot of the projections they had for it. But mm. in the context of 2010, this was like the next you know market that could be owned, and so. Uh, Amazon was going to sell the books below what they what they <clears throat> uh cost and take like a $3 loss per per copy it to get, you know, the customers and then be able to sell them other things and obviously we all know what Amazon has become so it was probably a decent strategy for them. Steve Jobs had sold 120 million iPads and he knew that they would be able to deliver these books through that channel. So he went like crazy to to uh Block Harper Collins, who was like the biggest publisher at the time. He got all these other publishers to go with him. And it was basically just like this clashing of these two titans. And he really just put on a masterclass of how you get, like he was able to get all these people to agree to paying him a big profit when Amazon was going to take a loss. So you see how much influence and power he had to get this done. And it was, it's a really, really interesting story of just two heavyweights just going after what is going to be a huge market. It's just not something that happens very often. So I was like captivated mm. by the story and I felt like I needed to write about it. Yeah. And, and you know, you know, I loved when you broke it down, you like, um, you spoke about some of the things he did and then you literally put in like the screenshots of yeah. like some of the emails yeah, yeah. that he sends. Um, and I find it so interesting from like the psychology perspective of like what he's doing and like the specific wording of like, even how he words the emails um can you talk about like and I, and I know you've even spoken about it in other threads like the the negotiation tactics um I, I think there's even a thread where you say like the the most important skill that they don't teach you in school is negotiation and I think so many people go into negotiations whether it's like uh, a salary uh, like with their employer whether it's like investors um we're kind of always negotiating, actually, if you think about it. Well, that's why I think it's so important. Yeah. And that's why I've written about it a few times is <clears throat> everything in your life, everything you want in reality is like, is negotiate, is a negotiation away. Any job you want, uh, if you want 
uh, a girlfriend, right? You got like, these are all negotiations of of trying to make somebody see something your way Mm -hmm. to get something done. Now, I think there's like different strategies that work really well, but I do think the most important one above all is like to make all of these a win-win, right? Like you want to, you want to make, I I put in that tweet, um, uh, John Paul Getty, who is a notoriously just ruthless business guy, Getty Oil, very successful, obviously. He said, you can never get all the money in a, in a deal. You got to let the other guy get some too. Mm. And the reason he said that is because like, if you just are known for for winning every deal, like people don't want to do deals with you eventually. So I think when you can go into something like that, it automatically just puts your mind into a frame of like, oh, I'm going to go into this in a way to look for why I get what I want, but also they get what what they want too. Mm. And it just starts from a foundation of good faith. And then there's a bunch of other tactics and, and stuff that I've written about that uh, I think help you achieve those that win-win outcome more effectively and like with more of a certainty. Um, but yeah, negotiation is it, vendors, customers, employees, partner, like you name it, banks, like investors, it, it's, it's everything. So it's just, it's a really important skill to like dig into the psychology of mm. because that using these tactics in a responsible way, focus on getting a win for everybody, uh, it's really effective, mm. right? And if you make good deals where you win and they win, then people want to keep working with you. Mm. And it's usually easier the second time around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, it's interesting. Um, like with all the, I don't know how closely you follow the NFL, um, but a big story this week has been like the Lamar Jackson uh, contract yep. negotiations. And I remember someone like in the sports media, they said, um, you know you have a great deal when both sides are a bit pissed off after yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like both sides feel like they kind of got got gotten. Yeah. Like, oh, he got a bit more from me than he should have. Or, yeah. oh, I should have asked for a bit more money. Or like, that's when you know you have a great yeah. deal. Yeah, a little bit of concession from each side, but it, it checks the major boxes. I agree. I think most good deals end up that way. Mm. If you were going to... To bring it back to um, Steve Jobs, if you were going to say, because you, you have like other threads about like Apple and their pricing. Yeah. Well, that one so like sent, yeah, sent me down the, an Apple rabbit hole. And like, yeah. they're just, there's, there's a reason you start to see why they've become what they've become. And yeah. it's like built into their core is like these yeah. insanely successful marketing strategies, which is a form of negotiation, I guess. Yeah. You, you know, one thing actually, it's very rare that I'll read something and you know, sometimes someone will say something to you or you'll read something and you'll be like, oh, like you're almost like laying back and you're thinking, yeah. like, oh shit. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> a, new, a new portal is opened. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read your, your one about, um, I was reading the one you did about scarcity this morning. <clears throat> and you, there was a line when you were like, um, Apple made you believe that the iPhone, which is literally like one of the most popular products. Like if you go into any office, any home most people in in that area will have an iphone Mm -hmm. like it's not even close they made you believe the most popular product is really scarce and then because you believe it's really scarce you're now willing to pay a premium for it yeah but everyone else has it yeah it's like when i read that i was like i never put the the two and two together like it's literally the most popular phone 
but like everyone's like i need to have it they're willing to camp outside for it like they create an illusion of scarcity and they're selling to the mass market it's like you don't get better than that yeah i mean it's it's like Really one of the only definite, one of the only examples you can think of having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. And then I think to even layer on top of that, one of the other things they've done that is epic is if you have the Samsung or something else, your texts are green. I mean, it's like you're not in the club, right? Is there anything yeah. worse than being a group text with someone who doesn't who, who doesn't have the, uh, the, the iMessage? And so I think all around, when you look at these things, you just, you see the genius in there from their products all the way through to their marketing to their distribution to everything is just it's so complete that there's no it's no wonder why they're one of the most dominant companies if not the most dominant company in history um and then they built the app store and they're taking like 30 percent of all these apps and it's like mm -hmm. they just from start to finish it's like critique that critiquing them is really hard like they're they're literally just insanely well run and i think they have something like 250 billion dollars in cash and it's like yeah. well, that, that makes a lot of sense you know <laughs> and so i think if you can even capture one one millionth of what they have you know that lightning in a bottle for your own stuff you, like you can you can get so much better and that's where i think apple is really interesting and they're obviously a huge business dealing in like anything from software to hardware to to wearables like all this like really intense stuff that maybe the average person is not just going to whip up and compete in markets like that, mm. but their ability to, from end to end, design to marketing to actually delivering the product is so cohesive. I think that's why we're just like, it's a no brainer. You're getting an Apple phone, right? There is yeah. no other way because no one is even close to them when it comes to their, the experience they give you. I think if you take a little bit of that and apply it to your own business, it goes a long way. Yeah. And it, you know, you know what I realized when I was reading your stuff is like how much of it is just psychology. Yeah. And like, I know obviously when, when you talk about Steve Jobs and if you look at Apple today, a lot of their success is based off Jobs's blueprint. Like he yeah. set the foundation for, for everything and they're just continuing it. Yep. Um, and it's interesting. Like there's, there's almost a bit of discussion of like, what is Jobs's like real superpower? Because he kind of has a few, right? Like, yeah, it's the, tough to pick. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like the the design is obviously incredible. Uh, he's obviously like a ridiculously good marketer, storyteller. Because um, he also made Pixar. Like he's a he's a great storyteller. Yeah, teller. he's done. He did a bunch of things, like things that don't even get that much attention that are you know really impressive on their own. Yeah. Does any does anything come to mind of like Yeah, I think like you see the whole Pixar and Next thing, like he just he just he knew how to how to create really complex businesses and 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 make them successful, like what seemed like very quickly after Apple and then he came back and did really well. But I, I think the whole thing with with him is just his obsession with the experience that people mm -hmm. have. And I think the experience includes the marketing and the experience includes the psychology and how you feel about it. And I think all those those things came came together for Apple, and like they're that's why they just they dominate probably one of the toughest and most competitive markets. And it's a no brainer who makes the best phone, right? You yeah. Just ask anybody what they use. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I love what you said about the yeah. the text go green thing because it's like um, you know it's, it's bad. Like I feed into it as well. Like when you when yeah. you have a friend that has an Android, yeah. come on, man. Yeah. Like sometimes <laughs> they pull it out and they instantly you're like, yeah. The jokes just like yeah, fly. That's it. They just immediately. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, here's where I kind of wanna wanna finish off on. Um, so you have like a successful business, a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, or close to a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. Um, even when we even when we met before this for this episode, I asked you, um, "Have you been on holiday?" And it was because I saw like the tan that you were coming in with. I was like, oh, he's having a good time. Like, good shit is happening. Um, like what's next? Like what, what, what do you want to achieve next? Like what gets you excited? Yeah. So we just, we just want to keep, keep on building. I just want to keep kind of stacking our, our wins and, and grow our storage company. And we started building our real estate portfolio in 2022. And we want to get more aggressive with that. We think the market might come our direction a little bit um and so yeah we just want to we want to keep building for the long term and just stay mm. focused on our mission we want to be the best commercial storage company in new england we want to own you know probably 25 plus commercial properties in the long run and so mm. we're just focused on that mission mm. what about i guess that's like the the company perspective and i'm sure like even at the start of the year when you're like doing your goals um you have like the company perspective and what you want to achieve in business what about like barrett the person yeah i want to keep uh i have a one-year-old son luke i just want to keep figuring out ways to be able to spend more time with him mm. um and still have business success i think that's the balance um you know that's one of the reasons i love entrepreneurship and and the leverage and all those things we talked about it's like you know what is your driving force i want to spend time with my family that's a non-negotiable but i want to make a lot of money as well so it's mm. like you got to figure something out and that leverages your answer so when i keep building more more leverage so i can i can spend time with him and my wife and maybe work on my tan a little bit more i don't, <laughs> <know>. <laughs> no, I don't think i'm there yet but that's beautiful man. No, i love it i love it okay here's here's my final one and um it's something that i wanted to ask you which is like, um, I remember like even earlier in the episode, we're talking about um, your baseball career and you're talking about the, the elbow injury that you sustained. And I'm like, I'm looking, I'm looking at you as you're even talking about it. And there's like a heartbreaking moment about it, right? Like putting you in all that work, sustaining that injury, it almost feels like it's lost. Um, how do you think that moment affects you now? I think in two ways, mainly. Um, one, <clears throat> on, the, uh, on the positive side would be the things we talked about. Like, I think uh, I look back on it and say, okay, well, if I can deal with a dream being crushed seemingly quickly small loss in business or losing a customer or making a bad decision doesn't really feel like that big of a deal. I know that I can come back from bigger things. Um, on the negative side, like I think there's always a, uh, uh, it's a bummer cause it's like, you feel like you put in the work for something and you earn something and it, it, you're doing it. And then right at that moment it gets taken away and doesn't fully get to come to fruition. Hmm. Um, but I would say that makes me like, appreciate good things while they're going on much more mm. right and so uh it's a skill i think i'm working on but every everybody can probably work on is like <laughs> we're all so distracted and thinking about the future and stressed about it but i think if you focus on on the the 
the current moment and what you can do today. Hmm. That's something that I've taken away from that too. But you know, certainly something that bothers me, and I expect probably will for my whole life to a certain extent. Yeah, is it motivating? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. How so? Um, I think just to to prove that you know, uh, you can compete at the the highest level of of a field of something. So now, you know, it's a different endeavor, but you know, can I be a, a, a top 1% entrepreneur, uh, and business owner and, and share those thoughts with people? Uh, like, I think that's what, where my focus is now, but it's all driven from the same place, which is just competing at the highest level. And that's really something I've learned as well as like it's less about the medium, more about that. Yeah. Oh, that's special, man. Now that's a wrap. Yeah. That's a wrap. Awesome. This was nice. fun. Yeah, it was a good one. Really good. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the channel. We're having fire conversations every week on the podcast. Before we end the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Free Agency. What if I told you there is a good chance you're leaving money on the table in your career? It would kind of annoy you a bit, right? Well, Free Agency aims to stop that. They represent and manage talent in the tech industry. Here's how they do it. First, they provide you with a dedicated talent agent. Think about this as your career quarterback. They understand you and your career goals. Based on that understanding, they bring you suitable interviews at top firms. You focus on smashing the interview and together with their network, research, negotiation expertise, they will make sure you get a top of market salary. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with free agency.